Scott. I'm Pete McCall. This is episode 88 of All About Fitness. Before I go into the introduction for this episode's guest, I want to take a moment to say thank you. To all those who've taken the time to leave a review for the podcast, thank you very much. You know how this works. The more reviews we have, the higher up in the search rankings we go, and the more people find All About Fitness. And if you enjoy the content that you hear on All About Fitness, on this or other episodes, please do me a favor. Take a moment. Leave a ranking. Let us know how, let other people know how you like it. You know, my goal is to put out good content to help you understand how to use fitness and exercise to enhance your quality of life. On that note, if you have any idea for guests or you just want some feedback, please reach me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. You can email me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com, or follow me via social media. Social media is PeteMC underscore fitness on Twitter. And on Instagram, I'm Pete McCall underscore fitness. I'm going to have those social media tags down below in the show notes so you can, you can find them there. And for those of you who've written in, you know, to Brian S. in Arizona, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate that feedback. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast, and I'll keep putting out good work, so hopefully you keep listening. And to Casey in Idaho, hey, thanks for the note, man. Congratulations on, on passing the certification. I'm going to send you some information on how you can get started on a successful fitness career. Now, on to this episode's guest. Core training is one of the most overused terms in the fitness industry today, at least in my opinion. Many trainers or many instructors will tell you to tighten that core, engage the core, 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 core. Well, what is the core? How can we train it? What do we, why do we need to strengthen it? This episode's guest, Dr. Stuart McGill, is here to answer those questions. Dr. McGill is a recently retired professor of biomechanics from the University of Waterloo in Canada. He spent his career and continues to spend time studying the, the spine, specifically mechanisms of injury for the spine, and what we can do for exercise to strengthen the spine and, as a result, strengthen our core. Now, if you really want to learn a little bit more about core training, listen to after the interview. In the wrap-up to the show, I, I give you some very specific information based on Dr. McGill's research for how you should be training your core. In this episode's interview, I spent time with Dr. McGill understanding how he got started studying the spine, what he's found. I'm really interested, to, I was interested to find out what is surprising the most about studying the spine, what is surprising about the most about doing his research. And for those of you that may be suffering with back pain, he's done some very important research. Dr. McGill took the time to study sexual intercourse and back pain, specifically the positions that can aggravate back pain during intercourse and the positions that can make back pain more comfortable, or at least less uncomfortable, during intercourse. So there's a lot to learn from this episode. After a brief word from the sponsor of All About Fitness, it is truly an honor to speak with Dr. Stuart McGill, international educator, author, and expert on the spine. What is part bench, part balance trainer, part stability ball, part jump box, and all results. The TerraCore by Vicor Fitness. Specially designed to help enhance balance, strength, agility, and metabolic conditioning, the TerraCore is quickly becoming the go-to piece of workout equipment used by fitness professionals around the world. Whether you're training to earn that eight-figure contract or just trying to get in better shape, the TerraCore will help you achieve results you never thought possible. TerraCore by Vicor Fitness. The shape of things to come. Go to www. 
V-I-C-O-R-E-Fitness.com and use code AAF, that's all about fitness, AAF, to save 20% on the purchase of a Terracore. I'm Pete McCall with All About Fitness, and I'm here today with Dr. Stuart McGill. Uh, Doc, uh, can you give us a little bit of background about your, your experience and what you've done and what you do in the fitness industry? Well, I was a uh, professor for 32 years at the University of Waterloo and uh, recently retired. Uh, during that time, I ran a laboratory and a clinic. And the overall objective was to measure and understand how the spine worked and how it became injured, and then develop uh, and test different rehabilitation approaches and tests and training programs. And uh, then uh, the last element was uh, on uh, enhancing performance and what were the ways to do that best, respecting the injury history of the individual, their age, uh, et cetera. So that's uh, <laughs> a, well, a brief summary. And you're... now all I do is uh, see patients and uh, do a few podcasts like this one, and people ask me to put on uh, training courses. So that's... Well, well, you've been known as, you've been known as one of the the foremost experts on spinal mechanics in the core. It, what got you, what was your first interest in it? How'd you get interested in studying the spine? That's an interesting question, Pete, because people ask me, uh, "Oh, what was the uh, plan for your life?" And uh, as if I had some wisdom or guidance, and I really didn't. It was uh, I, I could chalk that one up to attitude. It was just a, a series of strange, random events that got me into this whole spine area, and it was almost predicated upon sports. I, I really wasn't even interested in going to university as a <laughs> high school student, and it, it was through the football coach and some university coaches asking, was I interested in university? But to cut uh, to the chase on that one, uh, I finished my undergrad, and then for my master's degree, I chose a university based uh, not on football, but on uh, cycling quality and, and the hills. <laughs> so I went to the University of Ottawa for biomechanics, not spine biomechanics, but, but general biomechanics. And in my PhD, I was going to start in systems engineering. And I was then playing hockey with the University of Ottawa professors team. We played the University of Waterloo. And in the dressing room after the game, both teams got together to have the beer. And I sat beside a professor of spine biomechanics, and he said, come on over and see my class. <laughs> it was as random as that. So it was a combination of, of sports in a way. And then the attitude of when a opportunity presented itself. I uh, I took it, and uh, my my whole career has never really had uh, some sort of guidance that way. It was always responding. Old people would say, "Oh well, you know, could you come and tell us how the spine works? Oh, could you come and see a few patients with us? Oh, would you do a podcast? Do you see what I mean?" It was just responding to people's requests that really shaped my life. Uh, so it, it's it's a very strange answer. <laughs> well, it, 
not really. I mean, if you're looking at systems engineering, if you're looking at doing PhD work in, in systems engineering, isn't I mean, when you look at the, the break down the structure of the spine, you break down the structure of the body. Isn't just simple bio isn't biomechanics just engineering, but from a, a different perspective. Well, it is and it isn't. Uh, obviously, as a professor of spine biomechanics, that was our main thrust. But the the body is a, a living biological system, and uh, it has a brain with emotions and perceptions and all the rest of it. So if you're really going to be a master of the craft in dealing with people with back pain, say you're a trainer or say you're a 40-year-old uh, at a, at a desk for, for work and you're really trying to understand why you are not getting rid of your back pain. It requires more of a systems approach. So yes, you have to know the pain triggers and and do the mechanical component uh, and analysis of that. But there might be impediments that are based on uh, personality. For example, if we took a type A personality and as soon as they have a pain-free day, they go out and test it the day after and beat themselves up. See, they never give themselves a chance to for, for the mechanics because of their personality. So it's that whole system swirling that's been their impediment. But then let's take a type B type of personality who's movement adverse and they don't want to move. And, uh, you know, you could give them a program as a trainer or a coach, and they will bargain with you why they only need to do three reps when you've given them ten. So you have to encourage them. So do you see there's a, an example where one person needs to be encouraged and the other people, a person needs to be held back. didn't have anything to do with their mechanics. It was all personality driven. So there's just an example of to be a master of the craft and obtain the highest success rate you must appreciate the uh, family dynamics, their job, their their mechanics, who their parents were, their injury history, their age, etc., etc. To, to put it all together and figure out a how to interact with that person. Um, you know, I'm sure with your clients, you read them the second they come in the door, and you assess them and determine whether you're going to encourage, discourage, be rough, be crass, be very gentle and understanding, uh, etc. So uh, that's that's a, a, probably a bigger answer than just anything else. Well, it, it, the, the thing about it is, you know, with the human body, there is no specific cut or dry answer. And, and I try to point that out to listeners when I can, is that when you, when you speak with, you know, you speak with someone with your background, your experience, your education, the more it's funny, Stu. The more knowledge that people tend to have, the less definitive they are in the answers. You know what I mean? Like, given your background, you you will you hesitate to give a definitive answer because you know there's so many variables. Whereas some Instagram trainer will you know go out on social media and tell everybody they need to be doing this, that you have to be doing this. Um, why is it that? Do you agree with that? That it seems your experience that the more education people have, the, the more hesitant they are to give a specific, uh, you know, response. Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, you know, if, if people, I, I get emails, hundreds of them every day, can you give me some exercises for my back pain? And I, and I could say, no, uh, absolutely not. I need to know a lot about you to understand, first of all, what we need to do to desensitize your current pains 
and then build a foundation for you to move pain-free. Now, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, let's say you're a very slender-boned person, and uh, you want to uh, lift heavy, for example, versus someone with a very thick spine who inherently has a load-bearing capacity ability to handle uh, heavy weights much more easily. In other words, the stress is spread out over uh, a bigger spine, so to speak. Well, can you imagine bending a thin willow branch back and forth? There's no stress. You can bend it back and forth over and over again, and uh, no risk of damaging that willow branch. But if you took a, a thicker branch and bent it once to that same level of bend, it would shatter. So there's an example where a master of the craft will realize if you took the average NFL offensive tackle, who by definition will have thick, heavy bones and a thick spine, if you did a, uh, say, a heavy spine flexibility protocol, that would probably take them to pain a lot sooner than the heavier strength program. But if you've got someone with a very slender spine, a heavy strength program, if it overdrove their capacity, would take them to pain much faster than a, than a flexibility kind of approach. So. You know, the yoga people will argue with the trainers who want to carry heavy things, and they, they both say, well, you know, our people do best with this program. But when you analyze it, the, the type of people who enjoy yoga and, and they find it's very stress-relieving, you will find are they tend to be slender people who are adverse to lifting heavy things. So there's just an example um, across the biological spectrum when you really start to learn and understand why we're all different uh, breeds of dogs, if you want to think of that. You know, you could never take a St. Bernard and train it to compete with greyhounds at the track. You'd simply break it and make it sick and injured. Well, I like, so, I like that analogy quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's a very, a very fitting analogy. Yes. So, uh, as I said, as you become a master of the craft, the answer when someone asks a clinical, personal question, what's the best exercise, how many reps, this kind of thing, the answer is always, it depends. And if you provide enough information, or in some cases, I will actually have to do the assessment to figure out your precise pain trigger, then we, have, we can be very precise in uh, giving advice that will uh, help uh, because it has just as much chance to hurt that person. Well, and I think that's interesting because that, that becomes a common theme in, in the podcast when I interview people is that, you know, exercise is essentially stress on the body. And if we put the wrong stress on the body, we're not going to get the results we want, but we have to apply the stress in the right way. Yeah, an exercise is simply a tool to achieve a specific goal. Uh, know the goal and uh, know the parameters of the uh, person, and you'll choose a much better tool, which is a, a much better exercise with an appropriate dosage, with an appropriate rest period, uh, and that kind of thing. Well, and I read one time, Stu, that you that in your research you, you use pig spines, correct, to kind of approximate... The, the loading abilities of the human spine? No, you've been reading Facebook too much. This <laughs> is a real annoyance for me. Okay. Uh, people will read a study that we've done 
and we've published hundreds in the medical literature over the years. Some have used animal models because there's not a injury or disease condition that you uh, can understand without using a controlled animal model. So if, if I can raise 50 identical pigs and do 25, with 25 spines, do something to them, and then the other 25 spines act as a control, I can start to understand a mechanism. So animal models allow the control to understand the mechanism, but then you have to go and uh, transfer that mechanism now to a human population to test to see if, if uh, the rat or the, the pig or whatever it happened to be. So, uh, you know, again, there's some people who uh, I'm afraid have been a little bit uh, unaware, shall we say, and they'll say, oh yeah, McGill uses pig spines. Well, yes we do. We've used several animal models over the years, but the results have always been calibrated up to humans as well. Well, so we, but the, the reason sorry. why the reason why I asked that was was just because yeah I, I understand I mean to me it makes perfect sense why you're using an animal spine because you can't subject it's, it would be unethical for you to subject a human spine in a living being to the same mechanical forces or understanding the mechanical forces so to me it makes perfect sense of why we use an animal model and the question I want to get to is what's been your biggest surprise in all of your research what's been the one like kind of the thing that that you didn't expect to find when you when you when you started to study or as you as you put the research together what's one one of those big oh wow I didn't even realize that as, as you wrote a study up or as you public went to public yeah, well, I, I didn't really, uh, I, I, it's more the general impression that I have now after the number of years that I've been systematically probing this whole system. And uh, so to, not to avoid the, the, the question for specifics, but what I would say is it's interesting how much common wisdom you hear about the spine functioning and back pain that really isn't uh, correct. You know, I'll, to this day, when patients come to me, they'll bring their report from their doctor, please see this guy for non-specific back pain. There's no such thing as non-specific back pain. It always has a cause. You know, pain isn't normal. There's a cause to it. But there, it's amazing how few people have the skill and understanding of back pain to come up with a very precise mechanism of why they're in pain, and then they are able to create a very precise uh, guiding roadmap to desensitize the pain and build a pain-free foundation. Um, I've also, uh, from a general high-level perspective, um, really enjoy testing some of the great athletes in different sports. You know, why is this athlete who doesn't look that impressive just dominate their sport? And uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I mean, as I'm sure you know, we've, we've measured some of the top uh, fighters in, in, in mixed martial arts. And uh, we measure how hard they strike, how fast they strike, and these kinds of things. And the ones with the big muscles, they push their punches. In other words, when a muscle contracts, it creates both force and stiffness. So, in other words, if you just punch with force, it's a slow punch, and it's spread out over time, uh, the, the impact is. So it's not that impactful. But if the athlete can uh, has, has a very 
quick neurology. So they pulse the muscles and then release the muscle as the foot or the head uh, or, or the hand creates a faster, what we call closing velocity to the target. That requires muscle relaxation. It's like a golf swing. Um, if you try hard to hit a golf ball, it won't go very far. You, you, the, the peak is about 35 or 40 percent of uh, muscular effort. So anyway, my point is when you measure some of the great athletes, they don't test that strong. Um, they have this wonderful neurology and pulse control and they're able to relax muscle faster. Um, some of the great MMA people relax muscle six times faster than the average person on the street, or, or should I say the graduate students that were our control model in that particular study. So, you know, I hear some uh, trainers say, oh, getting stronger is always better. It always produces a better athlete. And I would disagree because I've, I've measured uh, the the top ones in a lot of Olympic sports uh, and, and the professional sports, uh, powerlifting, uh, etc. Uh, now, with the exception of powerlifting, which strength obviously uh, is very important, but that's, a, again, a very special kind of balanced strength through the body. The weak link is really exploited. But anyway, those are all uh, examples of, of big surprises that I could only say it's a surprise at, uh, towards the end of my career now. They're overall impressions. Well, I was going to, because I used to do some uh, do some work with Michelle Dalcourt, and I know you've, you know, he's a fellow Canadian, and, and I know you've, you've worked on various uh, speaking uh, speaking tours together. And one of the things that he would talk about and that I've kind of learned is that relaxation can be the key to performance, is that it's not necessarily how strong you get, but it's how easily, or, or kind of a mental state, how relaxed you can be before a competition. If I'm over, if I'm in an over anxious state and, and my muscles stay tight, will that will that hinder my performance? Will that you know reduce my ability to perform at a high level? Well, I'm going to tell you quite an astounding story. Uh, when you work with people and you get to know them, they tell you things that they've never told other people before. Uh, several top uh, MMA fighters, and I'm talking, everyone I'm sure these days knows what the UFC is, and uh, a few of them have admitted to me when I ask them, you know, what's the, what's, what's the biggest challenge that you face in your training and being successful in your sport? And uh, they'll admit that the biggest challenge is more mental, but you'll see the physical uh, correlate here. When they leave the dressing room and walk through the crowd and get into the cage, say that is the biggest challenge. They are so fearful when they're honest. Uh, you know, they, they, they know that they could, uh, that they're going to probably go to the hospital anyway after the uh, end of the match. Um, but my point is, fear stiffens the body. So you try, and when you're fearful, I'm afraid of heights, and when I go up on my roof to do a repair or something, I my legs stiffen up, and I can't walk. My balance is thrown off. My, my knees stiff. So I have to sit on the roof for 10 minutes to talk to myself to get into a relaxed state so I can even move. Well, what fear does to the fighters, you know, you'll see a lot of them calmly walking out, and the next ones are dancing and jiving as they come out. These are all techniques that they've learned to relax muscle because if you're fearful, 
and you come into the cage, you're stiff and slow, and the snap isn't there. Um, so there's an example of uh, uh, something that, that, that many people wouldn't realize and, and how fear changes that stiffness and speed. And, but anyway, uh, they train for it. And uh, I, I mean, I know one top fighter who actually gets dizzy first. He'll spin himself around in the cage, around and around, until he's totally dizzy. Then he spars to mimic the uh, challenge of fighting in a bit of a foggy state and, and still... Man, anyway, these are all... Very, very cool stories. <laughs> but that, it gets into that. It gets into that standpoint, and this is one thing that I've been learning in speaking with, with experts like yourself is that fitness is as much a mental state as is a physical state, and that you know I'm seeing kind of a more of a tie into meditation. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm slowly evolving to learn how meditation plays a role in performance. Meaning, it's not just what I can do under a bar that can lead to success, but what can I do with this muscle here between my ears? What? How can we relax that muscle between the ears so it does a better job of, of integrating with the rest of the muscles in the body? Is that? Do you think that's an area that could stand further study? Is is the role of meditation in performance athletes? Well, absolutely. The great athletes uh, perform mental imagery and rehearsal of their, their sports and moves and that kind of thing, which is their form of meditation, I suppose. But, uh, you know, in I don't know if you've read my latest book called Gift of Injury, but in there, uh, it was actually the story of Brian Carroll, who was a, a world record-setting powerlifter with a horrific back injury, and it was the story of his recovery and back onto the uh, championship podium once again. And in there, we, we give different little vignettes of uh, what... Uh, what the warrior spirit is and it comes from a state of meditation and an attitude and how many of the great strength athletes for example have this mental ability to uh, pull strength out of their body uh, to to override the fuse box that wants to put a limit on the amount of neural drive to the muscles you know I think of the great Alexei uh, Vasily Alexiev, the, the Russian super heavyweight who many of the older people with white hair like me will remember as more heavyweight Olympic records than anyone. And how, you know, he wouldn't want to even listen to the bar being loaded. He didn't want to know what weight was on the bar. All he knew was that he was going to lift it. And, you know, you can talk to Bill Kazmaier, world's strongest man, and you realize the warrior spirit. Uh, he's a very gentle man, a lovely man, and yet the ability that he has to conjure up the motor units through his body with that strength of, and brilliance of mind that he has, and, and people like him. So it is a meditative uh, mental skill. Strength is a skill. Uh, Pavel Satsumin, the, the great Russian kettlebell master, uh, also has this ability. And we've had wonderful discussions and, and training sessions together on how to uh, pull out this warrior spirit, as I call it, to, to pull performance uh, out of the body. But uh, it's, it's certainly trainable. It's certainly a skill. And uh, is 
quite often part of uh, some of the things that we do. Obviously, the higher end <laughs> yeah. athletic. It, it is, and, and I love the I love the fact that you referenced Alexeyev because I do a I do a lecture on strength and you know kind of on muscle versus fascia type of lecture, and I have a picture of Alexeyev at his peak next to a picture of Jay Cutler, a former Mr. Olympia bodybuilder, and I always ask the audience, who do you think is stronger? Because if you're familiar with Alexeyev's body, he wasn't overly muscular like a bodybuilder. And you, would, you know, people always think that the, the bodybuilder is stronger because of appearance. But they don't realize that Alexeyev, I think, 80 world records um, under his belt from weightlifting. So that's where people, you know, looks can definitely be deceiving. Oh, absolutely. He was an absolute wizard with the pulse strength that I was talking about earlier. So when you look at the uh, Olympic lifts... Uh, they're very different than the power lifts, for example, but the, the Olympic lifts is very much a pulse strength and relaxation phase. So you can imagine the lifter setting up in the, the wedge to start the pull, and then they pull the bar up to about mid-chest height, and then they have to drop under the bar for the catch. And if they have residual tension in their body at that point, the tension will stiffen and slow them so they can't get under the bar. Um, so they have to become this, this incredibly relaxed being to have the speed to snap under the bar and then have this enormous pulse strength through their body to stiffen because a few hundred kilos are now over their head. It's a pretty... <laughs> Mental crazy place to be, but that again is a, the, the the huge mental component. Um, and you're absolutely right. Be careful when you look at a person's body and decide whether they're going to be appropriate for Olympic lifting or not. And, and you'll be surprised when you look at the Olympic lifting bodies; they don't look like power, uh, bodybuilders at all. No, not at all. And, and I, I, well, part of that I learned from rugby. And in rugby, I was never I, I never feared the big guy. I always feared the smaller guy. That <laughs> that the big guy looked up to but let's, let's talk about strongman training for a second because I've been a big fan of your work on on studying strongman and I've, I've written one or two articles and blogs you know referencing your work why did you start um, decide why did you decide to start studying strongman and what have you learned about spinal mechanics and, and the core from studying strongman athletes well why did I do it because I would do anything if I could obtain more insight into how the spine works. So the strongman uh, investigations came from very simply, I, I, I sought them out. Uh, I had an opportunity to test uh, a few of the great ones. Uh, so I thought, yes, here's another opportunity. Um, just for your listeners, uh, I'll, I'll use another analogy. Why would Honda Motor Corporation try and build an F1 race car and race it. And then the answer is, what they learn at that level of elite competition, they can then pull down to making better passenger cars. So your Honda Civic, for example, has gear change technology in the electronics of the transmission learned on the F1 racetrack. So now let's go to the world's strongest man competitors. Um, uh, let's find out what is possible and how they do it, and then can we uh, take those lessons learned and bring them down to the person who's suffering with back pain and they're a construction worker or, or a gardener or they simply just want to play with their kids with uh, less pain. Well, now we can go on to strongman. Strongman is very cleverly designed to find your weak, weak point 
So if you're doing a farmer's walk or a suitcase carry or something like that, and your weak link is grip strength, that will be your failure point. Not your back, not your hips or anything else. Um, or it might be your lateral core. So say you, you've been a good power lifter and, or you've, you, you perform just Olympic lifts, bench press, power clean, squats, etc. You might be very strong and do well in those events, but you'll be very quickly eliminated from strongman because nowhere in your training did you uh, challenge the frontal plane, the side-to-side strengths, or if I measured quadratus lumborum and the oblique wall and the external rotators of the hip, they'd be deficit. And then when the person runs down the football field and they do a quick cut, they get back pain. Well, doing more squats is not going to help them. But a frontal plane challenge like a suitcase carry is exactly what they need. Well, that's in strongman. So my point is, every one of those events puts your body in a, a, a unique loading position, and it will find your weakness. So that's why I love strongman. And uh, it, it shows people where their links are. So uh, going back to the lifter uh, who has back pain, maybe... Uh, if, if they had more grip strength, for example, revealed in a strongman task, if we worked on their grip strength, their back pain will improve. And I'll give you the mechanism. Say they're doing deadlifts. And I'll go to the, the gym and I'll see a trainer with a stay-at-home mom doing a 45-pound uh, deadlift with an over-under hook grip. And I think that trainer is lost. Um, they should be teaching that person to deadlift with a double overhand grip, bending the bar, using the lats, creating a symmetric stiffness, locking the spine down so there's no micro movements, etc. And uh, but they don't. They, they 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 use some technique that an elite power lifter will use when they're lifting several hundred kilos to overcome their their grip strength. So build a pair of mitts. Uh, lock in the back with it and uh, teach people uh, how to lift and uh, spare their backs. So there's just an example of, of a grip strength deficit, for example, found in strongman and uh, why a person um, might be getting uh, back compromise in the gym with their trainer without knowing that the trainer thought they were teaching them good deadlift technique when it was really a, a very inappropriate grip uh, strength. Well, that's really good insight. And so I think that leads to the fact that over the last two or three years, I've seen more both trainers and the average person that read you know, consumer magazines do more carries in the gym, whether they're doing farmer's carries, suitcase carries, whether they're carrying stuff on their shoulders. What's the benefit of a carry exercise? And, and should we all, if we really want to develop a strong core, should carrying things start becoming a part of, a part of our exercise program? <laughs> well, I, I heard two different questions there. Should, yeah. should, should it uh, a core exercise? Well, you know the answer to that. The yeah. answer is it depends. So when, if I'm setting up a, a core program, which to me it's absolutely non-negotiable. We can talk about that if you like why it's non-negotiable. But um, I would have to know where the person is uh, in their training and, and what their uh, uh, pain history is. See, everyone I see has a history of back pain. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, so it's, it's non-negotiable. But sooner or later, uh, uh, walking, 
comes long before carrying, and it's incredible how little some people walk. Mm. So just a, a uh, uh, walking a short distance three times a day will so help a person uh, with with back pain because it balances up that frontal plane strength that I'm talking about. That okay. the, the, the glute muscles, for example, have two major neuromuscular compartments: the bottom of the glute, which is involved in the deep squat. Um, but the top part of the glute is really the walking, running, uh, external rotation, uh, et cetera, uh, component. And uh, if they could develop that more, they develop a firmer platform upon which the spine rests and take out a lot of the spine stress. So it would begin with walking, and then they could go to loaded walking, perhaps, say a suitcase carry with a kettlebell. And then, you know, years ago, when I used to work with, uh, well, I used to, I still do work with Pavel, um, he introduced me to the bottoms-up kettlebell carry. Well, we were the first to measure that. Yeah. And what that does, it engages the core even more because of the mass of the bell being now above the fist. And if you have a wonky core, you will uh, lose the lift and, and the carry. So it teaches a great discipline in tuning appropriate core control and stiffness uh, during the carry. But uh, what, what, just another little thought on uh, carries. Uh, I just happened to be training the other night, night uh, down in our center here, and I was watching out the corner of my eye the uh, brand new uh, World's Strongest Man that has just come out on YouTube. And I was watching the multiple squat competition and a couple of other, the other lifts. And the failure, you know, they, how, how many times can you squat? And I forget what the load was, 750 pounds or something ridiculous like that. And uh, every time one of the competitors failed, you could see the core getting loose. Mm. They broke in the core and they lost the lift. And that was what defined their, the, 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 the last rep on the competent squat. And... Uh, in almost every case, it was a frontal plane failure when you had examined it. Um, that's the gift that uh, unilateral carries give, is to challenge that frontal plane. And, uh, bring, but, you know, before that, they might want to start with side planks or, or something appropriate for a particular uh, painful. Well, I, chuck uh, yeah, I chuckled a little bit, Stu, because I live here in, in San Diego in Southern California, and I don't think many people walk. I think the furthest people might walk during the day is if they can't get a, a good parking spot close to the front door of the gym. And I just, I just mean that, 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 you know, in certain parts of our, of our culture, we've, we've taken out the ability to walk. And it's my belief, and I learned this from, from studying with Gary, Gary Gray, is that walking is like our default, um, the default motor pattern for the human body. So the more we can walk, the, I like what you said, because that's what made me think of it, we reset the system. Like if your computer, if your computer goes down and you call the help desk, what's the help desk usually te tell you to do? Unplug it and plug it back in, right? To get it back to default settings. So yeah, is, we, go ahead. I, I just said people couldn't agree more. You're right on. And and so isn't walking just? I think that's a very. Th I think that's an important thing for listeners to hear. Is I think that sometimes we don't just walk enough in the day. And if we got up and took 15 minute walking breaks, do you think that would take a big step towards alleviating little things like chronic back pain or just overall joint discomfort? Well, I don't think so. I know so. I've measured it. <laughs> oh, you Absolutely. have. Okay. Absolutely. Walking is non-negotiable. 
And that's an important thing. So one of the reasons why I wanted to, to chat with you today is even though the study is a couple years old, I really think it's important and I really think it, it can affect a lot of the listeners. And that's your study on coitus or intercourse and back pain. Why did you decide to study uh, the effect of sexual intercourse on low back pain? Was that something that, that you noticed or that you've heard from patients and clients? Well, why? That, that, that's a big question. Uh, th- th- there are several uh, answers there. Uh, the first is, um, obviously, with, with my medical friends, uh, if you talk to any frontline clinician who meets with people uh, with back pain, they will tell you that couples come to them and say, you know, we, we had sex four months ago. We knackered our backs so badly. We've now been celibate. For, for half a year because we're fearful of what that could do to our backs once again. And the clinicians will say, what do we tell them? There are no guidelines that exist on what they should tell that couple. Well, this is some pretty important stuff. So throughout my career, I've tried to tackle the big questions. And sometimes they're not very politically correct, which is so interesting in the United States, no one would dare do this. They huh. couldn't get ethical permission. Um, someone would uh, call for their funding to be uh, taken away or, you know, it just wouldn't be possible to do in the U.S. So uh, we proposed it to our ethics committee at the University of Waterloo. The chief medical officer of the university got behind it. The president of the university got behind it. And uh, obviously, it was a, a, a huge challenge and a very sensitive issue. Uh, for example, we uh, didn't recruit anyone from the university community. You know, you could imagine a mom or a dad wondering or hearing his wife, my uh, son or daughter, going to be <laughs> recruited in such yeah. a study. So, you know, it was a very sensitive thing, of course. But nonetheless, what we did do for the first time ever, we recruited couples and uh, we outfitted the lab. Uh, And again, this might sound strange, but we put a bed in the middle. Uh, The lights were dimmed down. Now, we set up a system of uh, a dozen infrared cameras and we reconstructed their body movements. You're familiar with the movie Avatar, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And... uh, and a lot of the uh, computer uh, uh, imagery that's now going on in Hollywood, what they do is they put little tiny markers on the uh, actors' faces and over their body, and then it's this infrared uh, reconstruction of those markers that drive their avatar. We used exactly the same system, so that's how we recreated their bodies for uh, three-dimensional motion. The uh, couples then wore uh, EMG sensors, or sensors that sensed the amount of muscle activity strategically through their body and in different muscles around joints. So we were able to measure joint stress, muscle activation levels, ranges of motion of their spines and hips and these kinds of things. Um, so the, the remember, the main object of all of this was to create an atlas that we could then distribute to family physicians and physios and whatnot. They would test their uh, patients who had back pain and determine the cause. Was it caused by bending their spine forward or bending their spine backward or a certain load? Or was it just motion in general that was irritating the back pain? So uh, the docs, they follow my book, Back Mechanic, which takes 
people through a self-assessment of their back pain, and they learn what combination of motions and loads uh, cause their back pain. Then they can look up on the atlas and say, okay, well, if I'm extension intolerant, I should avoid the missionary position, which, you know, I, I learned names of all of these different positions. Some of them, I didn't know what spooning was, for example, <laughs> but I do yeah. now. Yeah. And uh, it turns out that that's not a wise thing to do at all. Um, however, um, the person can then look up on the atlas and see what position avoids their particular pain trigger. And they're able to uh, enjoy without uh, triggering their, their back pain. Um, but it's just a couple of the overarching rules of thumb from the, that whole study. Uh, the person on top is responsible for the motion. And we teach or show in the atlas different uh, positions and, and movement strategies to avoid uh, the spine pain trigger. So, for example, they might use their hips more in a hip hinging fashion rather than a spine hinging fashion. The person on the bottom places and supports their back in a position that doesn't uh, trigger pain. So, there's just a generalization on the top. But, well, um, well, all the well, sorry, all the giggles aside. You know, when I was doing the research for this and, and, and looking through some of the news releases, and I'm going to use Canadian estimates because that's where you're based. But the one, the one write-up I saw about your study is do was that more than 80% of men and 70% of women deal with low back pain at some point in their lives. And I think this is a very, in all honesty, I think it's a serious issue to discuss. And I first heard you talk about it, I think, in 2016 at the Perform Better in Long Beach. And I think it's it's one of those things where. I think it's reasonable to, to, to take a look at and study to say, hey, you know, intercourse is a significant part of the human experience. And if people have back pain that can't, that keeps them from that, do you, don't you think that back pain, if, if that back pain keeps me from, um, you know, having intercourse with my wife or my spouse, don't you think that would lead to depression? I mean, I think that's why this merits study. How was your, how was the study received when you published it and there, you had a, a lot of media on it overall, what do you, how do you think it was received and what kind of response did you get from it? Well, it was an overwhelming positive response, and in fact, the university tracks uh, their their news releases, and I can tell you it was the most successful media release in the history of the university. Uh, the study became front page in uh, Costa Rica, Argentina, China, Spain, Italy, Poland, um, etc., uh, we even made the front page of The Economist. I, I was going to say, I, I saw you in The Economist, and to me, that's the marker of any news. If you're covered in The Economist, then that is, <laughs> it, I mean, it is. I mean, it's international news. I Before right. I got into fitness, I was in international relations. I, I did my semester abroad at the London School of Economics many years ago, and ever since oh, wow. then, I've, I've, I've read The Economist. So that's what really impressed me most, too. When I saw that The Economist covered this as a story, so the, are you going to be doing like a secondary study or a follow-up on this? Well, actually, the woman whose uh, graduate work what was the primary on this, her name was Natalie Sidorkowitz, and she's continuing that work now. So uh, there'll be more reports uh, coming out for sure. And so do you have this, this manual that you have? Is that available easily, or is that in a, in a book that you've written? Or how would people get more information on that? Yeah, there's a Reader's Digest version of it in the last chapter of my book, Back Mechanic, which I wrote for the lay public. Um, 
so it's it's in there in a very rudimentary form but it's also coming out in some of the family physician uh, magazines the, the, the trade magazines that are sent to the your, your doctor's office for example but for the lay public they can get it from back in Canada well in, in wrapping up here what do you think for people that might be dealing with back pain and again I'll, I'll couch this in with a big statement that it's impossible to give one blanket answer for the myriad out of problems. But what do you think? What do you think is one thing that the people listening could do in their daily habits to move them away from some sort of back pain and towards a more normal functioning um, spine or, or core region? Is, is there any one thing they can do, or is it a series of things that they would have to start incorporating into their day? It's absolutely a series of things. Um, you know, when I wrote Back Mechanic, uh, I didn't do it, a book agent shopped that around to different uh, publishing houses in the U.S., and every uh, publisher said, this book won't sell, you have to have the title, Fix Your Back in Five Easy Steps, or, you know, Simple Way to... And I said, that's a lie, it's a myth that doesn't exist, there is not a simple way. Uh, so the book, and I ended up just uh, self-publishing it, was uh, 17 chapters, very systematically and scientifically uh, organized and founded. Find out what causes your particular pain, then here is a spine hygiene strategy matched to your particular pain trigger to remove the cause. Now you can start to desensitize your pain. Then you there's another uh, questionnaire and uh, little testing section. It will then show you what your deficits are that are preventing you from building a pain-free foundation for movement. So if you want simple, you will fail. But the filling will follow a very systematic, logical series of steps. You will understand the cause of your pain, and you will uh, very appropriate and in a targeted way build that pain-free foundation and carry on. Well, as someone who's read a, a number of your research studies over the years, and I have a couple of your formal textbooks, um, I did pick up a copy of that book, and I, it is easy to follow. So I'm going to definitely have a link to that in the show notes below. Uh, final, final question. This is because I recently had uh, Marty Gabala on this um, on, on the show. Why do you think? Uh, why does Canada have such a different? Why are so many well-known researchers and fitness educators from Canada? What are you guys doing differently up north that really creates a, a positive environment for looking at fitness in a different way? You know, that, wow, Pete, you've asked a few questions that you're pulling answers out of me that very few uh, hosts do. So good for you. What, Thank what you. What a brilliant... Um, I'm going to give a thought, and uh, I mean no offense of this, but... Um, I've sat on review boards in the United States that scientists and professors, they submit their, their research grants to and they're adjudicated. And I find it um, really uh, a corrupt system. And I hate to say this, but that's my, my view. I see some of the senior scientists trying to get more money for themselves. And um, how many research studies... Uh, a new person, a young scientist sends in a study and they always send it back. Oh, do this little, uh, pr prove the principle that it's going to work. 
In other words, they engineer out all the risk. And when they engineer out all the risk, that means that it's not a study that's going to reveal some great big finding. It's safe little research. And that's what the American system forces upon its scientific community. In Canada, I was funded for 32 years by the uh, Science Engineering Research Council. They never once uh, forced me to... You've got your best friend there with you. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, Doc. Sorry. She, she. I guess she got bored. She was watching a day off of school for them, and I guess she got bored watching a movie. So she's been my, she's been my movements, she's been my movement study for about three and a half years now. <laughs> anyway, all I was going to say was, with our funding system, we submit a general plan over the next five years, but no specifics on the studies. It gives you free reign to take huge risks. And then you can ask big questions for that. For example, the sex study that never would have been done in the U.S. So that was a huge risk, but a huge reward. Um, so that's one of the major differences between Canada and the uh, the U.S. We give young scientists the chance. Now, if they blow it in their first <laughs> review, they're enough, take their money away. Yeah. But if they are d- bold and daring and asking questions where they may or may not gar- get a guaranteed answer. So be it. That's how you get great discovery. And I, uh, Marty is, has been a friend for years, and, and he's another fabulous scientist who's very creative, takes huge risks in his, his research. But look at the rewards he makes. Well, and, and as you say that, you know, that makes sense because he's been studying HIT training for um, obese and, and sedentary populations. And I don't think he would get that funding here in the States. You know, from the way you just described it, I don't think that he would get the funding to do that research if he were in a different system that would just seek to support its own dogma. Yeah. Anyway, the universities are are being squashed by by the way the money is doled out. And isn't it interesting that the great discoveries in the U.S. are almost always private now? They're coming from companies like Tesla and whatnot that are putting their money where their mouth is. And they do their own research, and they don't have to worry about a funding body taking their funding away. And that's certainly been the uh, Canadian attitude. So it allows us to be free and and bold and daring. Um, Anyway, there's just an observation that uh, you may or may not uh, want to hear. <laughs> well, no, I think I think it's important, and, and you know, I'm always trust me. Uh, given the current state of uh, affairs down here in the in the U.S., I am always willing to take a critical look at, at what we're doing in all realms of the <laughs> our political, social, <laughs> you know, social climate. Well, Dr. McGill, do you have a, a way? You don't do you do a blog, or do you have any way that people, other than your books and your publications, is there a way that people might be able to get more information about what you've done and the work that you've done on the spine? Well, I, I'm, I'm not a social media person. My, my attitude really on that is you either do your work or you can be on social media. And I, I just simply can't do both. But having said that, um, we do have a website where we post uh, information on, and uh, someone else runs that for me. And I'm, I'm learning slowly that this is now the new medium for, for getting uh, uh, the ideas out there. So uh, our website is backfitpro.com, just as it sounds, B-A-C-K-F-I-T-P-R-O.com. And... Uh, uh, I think that's about as good as I can do on that one. I, okay. I, I don't have 
a, a broadcast channel or anything like that. But that's that's the role of people like yourself who, uh, who, who search around and find worthwhile contributors, and, and you're the one who can do the uh, bird dogging for your uh, listenership, so to speak, and, and cut out some of the, the noise and, and some of the, the real negativity that they might get on uh, social media, and, and you really become the leader. Well, I appreciate that because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. But, but Stu, at some point, I would love to have a, another conversation with you again. Um, I, I really, I think y- your research on intercourse is, is critical. I think it's a very important, I think the findings were very important. So I wanted to have a way to introduce that to my listeners. But uh, I, I'd like to have you back again at some point in the future and we can discuss uh, stuff that Dr. McGill says because I love that piece when you did it at a, at a show, when you did it at a Perform Better. And, you know, because I think you do a great job of breaking down you know various myths and various um fallacies that people have and you just point to the evidence to say this is what we understand so at some point uh, hopefully we can bump into each other live or i can have you back again to go through uh you know kind of the, the fallacies behind stuff uh dr mcgill says that'd be wonderful thanks so much Pete. well thank you and i appreciate your time today Okay, stay warm down there in San Diego. It's only minus 22 for today. First, I want to take a moment and just acknowledge the sound quality there. Uh, When I get somebody like Dr. McGill and I get a little bit of his time, um, I'm really, I'm honored and I'm privileged. It's always, it's great to have that conversation. And he was using the microphone straight on his laptop. So I think that was that explains a lot of the background and, and ambient noise. But technical issues aside, hopefully you, you got a better understanding of, of what core training truly is. Now, Dr. McGill has done a wide variety, a very extensive variety of research on the most effective ways to, to strength train you know, for all the entire body, but with an emphasis on creating a healthy, strong spine and back. Now, a lot of times core training, you know, we hear train the core, we have to engage the core, or we do it laid on the ground. But a lot of what Mr. McGill's work, or a lot of what Dr. McGill's work has found, is that we're much better off training our core standing up on our feet. Here's one thing to think about. Our body is designed, all the muscles in our body are designed to be most effective when we're standing upright on our feet, moving over the ground. When you lay down, Laying down is a signal to your body that you're ready to go to rest. It starts creating creates parasympathetic drive. That's the component of your nervous system that promotes rest. So to sit to, to lie down on the ground to exercise is kind of counterintuitive for how our neuro, you know the nervous system and the neurophysiology of how our bodies are designed to function. So if your interest is in you know strengthening your core, you know you do need to do some ground based work like planks and bird dog to kind of to get away from a sore back or to help develop a foundation level of strength. But if you really want to develop a truly strong core, it's a good idea to learn from strongman training. You know, as Stuart McGill, you know, said, as Stu said, he studied strongmen. He studied mixed martial arts athletes. These are people that put tremendous loads and tremendous forces on their body. And overall, they have a relatively low rate of injury. So, you know, McGill's research has shown us that, you know, exercises like carries, carrying kettlebells, either by your side in a farmer's carry or overhead or, or by your shoulder in a waiter's carry, that carrying kettlebells can be extremely effective for developing a stable core on our feet. Other exercises include the standing cable press, 
where instead of laying down on your back to do a chest press, you use a cable machine and put the cable at shoulder height and just press straight out from a standing position. Try that sometime <laughs> because you really have to plant yourself solidly in the ground to do a standing press and you feel everything light up in your body. Another, another great core exercise that we might not realize is bent over rows. You're doing a bent over barbell row. You have to maintain a strong, stable spine and use a palms up grip for less stress on the shoulders. But that's an excellent exercise. You know, another one is using the, using the TRX. If you heard my interview with Chris Frankel, the director of human performance for TRX, you know, he, he, we talk about the work that Stuart McGill did to show the benefits of using the TRX for developing total body strength, for developing the core. Now, here's a little plug, a little shameless plug. I, I do a workshop on core training at the SCW Mania Fitness events. The website is scwfit.com. I think I'll be at seven of the events around the country this year. So you can check that out if you want a little bit, little bit more um, in-depth knowledge of how your core functions. The workshop is based on the work of Dr. McGill. So you can either read his books and read his studies or come take the workshop. But plug aside, uh, there we go. Now, the other, one thing I do want to comment on is that, you know, Dr. McGill made kind of an offhand remark during our conversation about deadlifting, you know, an over-under grip versus both palms down grip. You know, deadlifting is one of my favorite exercises. You know, I, I injured my back a number of years ago, and if I do a regular squat, I hold a goblet squat where you hold a dumbbell or a kettlebell in front of your chest. I definitely don't load a bar on my back. But picking a, you know, deadlift is picking a bar up off the ground. And for years, I've always used an over-under grip. You know, after Dr. McGill made his comments about the, you know, palms down grip, I've been trying it for the last couple of weeks. And it, it really it adds a lot to the exercise. It allows you to, to engage your lats more. You can spread or what he called breaking the bar. You get more of a, of a solid pull. And I feel like my body is more engaged. The challenge is, you know, developing the grip strength so I can maintain the weight. You know, 275 pounds was relatively, I don't want to say easy, but very manage, manageable and over-under grip, but doing a palms-down grip makes it just a tad harder. My grip starts wearing out before my hips do. So, you know, it's interesting. That's just one I want to share that because that was very insightful. And, and I've heard, you know, different versions. And in my opinion, there's no right way or wrong way to do an exercise. You're either doing it efficiently or inefficiently. But that's a conversation for another time. Hopefully you got a lot out of our conversation today, especially if you've been dealing with back pain. You know, especially if you want to learn how to, you know, to use, uh, you know, to, to strengthen your core or to be able to uh, be intimate, you know, despite having bad back pain. So a lot, I'm going to have a lot of information down in the show notes below. I'm going to have the research on uh, the study that he did on, on back pain, you know, positions for back pain. I'm going to have an article I did on strongman training. I'm going to have another blog I wrote on uh, vertical core training, training your core on your feet. All this stuff emanates back to, to the work that Dr. McGill has done for years. I want to thank you for taking the time to stop by All About Fitness. If you have any questions or you want to send me any ideas for future shows, please reach out to me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you get a moment, like I said in the intro, if you can take a moment to give us a rating or a review, however you, you listen to All About Fitness, I'd greatly appreciate it. That just helps promote the word. And if you want to interact with me on social media, my Twitter handle is PeteMC underscore fitness. That's PeteMC underscore fitness on Twitter. And my Instagram is Pete McCall underscore fitness. That's Pete McCall underscore fitness on Instagram. Thanks for stopping by All About Fitness. And I look forward to having you join me for future episodes.